This is Half Hour to Curtain, a monthly podcast with theater artists of note. We talk about all things theater. I'm Mark Kaufman, and over there is... Dan Fishback. Hello. Hello. How are you, Mark? I'm pretty well. How are you? Are you do- you're doing the intro still? Are we, are we Are we taping? I think we're taping right now, Mark. I think we're taping. Okay, it's so this is here. actually happening. This is part of the podcast. This is, we're, we're live now. We're live, and we're in Los Angeles, California. Our guest today is Joanna Gleason, perhaps best known for her Tony Award-winning performance as the baker's wife in the original production of Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine's musical Into the Woods. Joanna's credits on stage and screen are many. Other Broadway credits include Tom Stoppard's The Real Thing, Arthur Lawrence, Charles Strauss, and Richard Maltby's Nick and Nora, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and Peter Nichols' play A Day in the Death of Joe Egg, for which she received her first Tony nomination. Joanna's film and TV credits include The Newsroom, Mr. Holland's Opus, Boogie Nights, The West Wing, and two Woody Allen films, Hannah and Her Sisters, and Crimes and Misdemeanors. It's our very great pleasure to welcome Joanna Gleason. Hi. Thank, hi. Thank Happy you for be being here. here. If only we had an applause machine. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you should be Dame Joanna Gleason. I think they should dame you. <laughs> Do you think? Uh, yes. Absolutely. That would that would I'd be happy with that. Except for the ceremony with the sword. Would they do that? Do they or that's for knights, I guess. That, oh right, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Um so let's let's get right into it. C- can you remember sort of the first inspiration that led you to an acting career? Can I remember? No, I just remember seeing, um, I, I remember I, I was watching some black and white movie in the same room with my parents and I thought, I wish they weren't here because I feel like I am in that movie, you know, I, I want to be in that kind of, it was a kind of thing where, oh, my parents won't understand this in me, but of course they would and did. But I was watching, I think, The Song of Bernadette, which was a very influential movie in my life, of, of all things. Or, or I was watching The Diary of Anne Frank, you know, or something very much where a young girl was, you know, isolated or imperiled or misunderstood. And, and I remember thinking, look at the opportunity to express that. I was very young, but look at the freedom to express that within the safety of, um, of a movie, of a playing a role. And so that was the first kind of, you know, like, huh, I get to maybe reinvent myself a bunch. Did you did you have a, a thought that you wanted to do it on television specifically or did it, you know, had you had you had much experience with the theater at that point? My parents took us to the theater. We lived in New Rochelle, New York for a while before we moved to L.A. And they did. They took us to, to Broadway shows. And so yeah, it was the, always on stage. It was always going to be about being on stage. What was your imagine- first Broadway show? Uh, it was um, Bye Bye Birdie, and I think oh. it was at that point it, it was Jean Rayburn and and uh, 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 and, and the woman that will come to me um, should have prepared better for this interview. But <laughs> it, was, it was in the it was in the 50s, and then I know they took us to see How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying with Robert Morris and Rudy Valley, and then I got to do the the, the uh, revival of it with Robert Morris and Rudy Valley. I was I was the understudy for the lead, who never got sick, while the entire company got I don't know like you know malaria, leprosy, but um, she didn't. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, they took us to the theater. And you mentioned your parents, of course, uh, for people who don't know, your father was Marty Hall, who yeah. was the host of Let's Make a Deal, and he was a you know beloved presence on television for many, many years. Were he and your mother encouraging 
of you once you got the bug to to be a performer? Uh, no. My mother, well, they weren't discouraging. My mother had been an actress on radio in, in uh, Canada, and dad started in radio in Winnipeg and Toronto, mm -hmm. and then slowly segued into television. And then during the big, um, during the 21 uh, game show scandal, Oh, yes. When everybody had to kind of take a break, but the show went on, Dad went in to substitute host for uh, Jack Barry. And, ah. Yeah, and, and he did a lot of radio and TV in New York. So Let's Make a Deal is, of course, because it's still running amazingly and brilliantly with Wayne Brady. Mm -hmm. um, that's the thing for which he is the most uh, known. And it was the kind of like the last gig he got, you know, after having, having had a couple of decades of... of, of beating around and doing stuff and, you know, making things work. But um, it was the platform, and he, they, he was called upon to be keynote speaker and fundraiser and auctioneer, and and he did that, and he raised about a billion dollars for charity, somebody once captured. Wow, that's wow. spectacular, yeah, spectacular. It was amazing, and it was, you know, always just like, I'll be there. And they didn't have to, maybe they'd fly him, but he rarely, for charities, took a fee. So wow. that was my dad. That's tremendous. Did you, uh, speaking of the, of the show, Let's Make a Deal, did you hang around that show as a kid? No, I think I went there once. Oh. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't really interested in it, and he, nor was he interested in bringing it home. You know, mm. get home, and did you do your homework, and we'd go for, you know, family stuff, or we'd go out to dinner, or we'd sit around and listen to music, or he and I would do the crossword puzzle on Sunday, and it was just very much like show businesses outside of that door, and that's where it stays. That's yeah. kind of terrific. Yeah. yeah. Now you moved from Canada, where you were where you were born, uh, to LA for high school, and and you graduated from Beverly Hills High. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. yeah. Did you do shows in high school? I did. What did I, you do? I had the the benefit of of having John Ingle, uh, uh, kind of legendary John Ingle, as my high school drama teacher, and that really wow. changed it changed a lot for me. I mean, I also came in as a freshman when Richard Dreyfus was a senior and Albert Brooks was oh. there and Julie Kavner went through school, you know, and um, it, it was uh, it, it was just Lorraine Newman went to went to school with us. Michael Tolkien, the brilliant writer, mm, yeah. Emmy nominated or when probably won. Yes, he did. Um, so it was it was a uh, it was a great kind of uh Petri dish of, of theater, you know, talent um, encouraged by John Ingle. Wow. And yeah, I did shows. We did, oh my God, we did uh, The Music Man. I was the, remember when the picture frame comes across and frames the farmer and his daughter, the ugliest yeah. in Iowa? Yeah, that was, that was <laughs> the singing line there. And uh, we did The Mikado and uh, the, uh, the ugly outcast, uh, Kadishaw. That was, that was me. <laughs> All characters. Oh, oh, the ponies, the grass harp, the spinster sister, Verena. That was me, and I went and I went up to Mr. Ingle and I said, "Really, just?" <laughs> and he said, "Listen to me. You will grow into beauty, and you will always work." He said, "If you're the kind of little pom pom cheerleading, you know, if you're whatever the sort of soprano is now, you know, you forget that. That fades, but you're going to work forever." Wow. And that's and, the ghost of John Engle phoning to say thank And he you. was right. He was right. So <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, when did you move to New York, and, and what brought you from L.A. to New York? Uh, okay, so started in Toronto and New Rochelle, moved out to L.A. for Dad when Let's Make a Deal started. 
stayed there through high school and college, UCLA one year, Occidental College for the last three. Then I came out to New York because I auditioned in LA for a musical called I Love My Wife, Cy Coleman. Mm, and, sure. and I auditioned in LA because the, the first director, Joe Layton, uh, lived in LA. And I made the callbacks, which were in New York. And I had to get myself to New York. And I think we had a we might have had a bunch of people over to play the home game of, of Jeopardy for money. I think if memory serves, is <laughs> it was $400 to fly round trip to New York. And I did. And I stayed with my brother and I had the call back on the bear stage with the ghost light, you know, for Cy Coleman. Yeah. And I and I got the part. So that brought me to New York the first time. Was that your first big audition? It was my first Broadway audition. First yes. Broadway audition. And I got it. And I was in it for 14 months. And then went back to L.A. for a few years, and then life changed, and I moved back to New York for another right. time. And uh, I Love My Wife was a hit. That was a, a great, fun show. It's a show you can't do now. It was so tame, but it was about wife swapping. But, it, but I mean, right. it, it tame. Right. Lenny Baker, Eileen Graff, and she and I are still really close friends, and Jimmy Naughton, who lives up the uh, road here in, in Connecticut for me. The right. four of us and four great musicians. It was the sweetest. It was a wonderful show, and it was a hit. And you know what? We opened... Before Annie, just like ten days before Annie. Oh my goodness! Mm. So we got a little recognition and I, you know, and could build an audience. But if Annie had opened first, it, 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 we would have been obliterated. Right, right. Wow. That made such a splash, of course. Yeah. Uh, um. Then and then after, I love my wife. A day in the death of Joe Egg. Was that what followed? Uh, you. I love it. Well, then I went back to L.A. and I did a television series, and I'll, I'll, it was called "I'll Have to Kill You After I Tell You This." It was called "Hello, Larry" with McLean Stevenson. McLean Stevenson, of course. I'm a Northwestern guy, so we're oh. we're, we're all McLean Stevenson fans, of course. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, and hung around L.A. for a while, and it was uh, Joe. You know, Joe Egg was 1985, I think. Mm -hmm. I was back in New York by 1981 and doing shows off Broadway and around uh, up and downtown. Uh, and Joe Egg, yes, was another big break and it moved to Broadway. It started um, like at, the, at the roundabout, it started I think at the roundabout and then moved to Broadway. That was big. I remember liking that production. I saw it and thought it's the, it was my first exposure to the play, which mm -hmm. is quite unique. And I thought it was a lovely production. Did you have a good time doing it? Very much so. And I met Stocker Channing. We've become, we're lifelong mm -hmm. now. And Wonderful. And Jim Dale was magnificent. And Tenny Walsh. And it was, uh, and Joey Tillinger played my husband at first. And then uh, Gary, oh, um, forgive me, Gary. I, your name will come to me later. Uh, came in. But I think it was at that point, it might have been Joey Tillinger was playing my husband. He's a, also And Joe Tillinger, who became a director. Yes, yes, indeed. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yes, who, who just directed... Um, Faye Dunaway in the uh, uh, Catherine Hepburn play that is no more. That is not going to happen well, yes. now. For the moment, anyway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. And that was your first nomination for a Tony Award. What Describe yeah. that experience of, of being nominated for the Tony for the very first time. It's, it's surreal because, of course, you fantasize about this all the time, but then you prepare yourself, you know, it's a... It's there. It's a crowded field, and you know you haven't grown up here and and ridden, ridden your bike every day to the theater so that they're doing <laughs> profiles about you in the magazines. You know the hometown. You know you came from LA, and you just give yourself such a hard time. And then when they when you get the phone call, I think it was a phone call um, from your agent that you got nominated. I was just over the moon, absolutely wow. 
over the moon. Yeah. Let's jump forward a couple of years to, to 1987 and the role you're perhaps best known for, the baker's wife in, in Into the Woods. Do you remember that audition? Yeah, I remember it very well. In fact, I talk about it in one of the, I've written, I've written a, two shows that I've done, solo shows. Oh, and one is coming to LA. Ooh, the new one. Yes, put February 8th and 9th in your calendar. Oh my goodness. I'll give you more information about that later, but it's been a big sold out, wonderful thing here at Feinstein's 54 Below. It's my, it's the new show. But in the old show, I, I talked about the story of my audition for Into the Woods. I was not really, I had done I Love My Wife, that was years before. I had kind of disappeared from the scene. I was back doing off-Broadway, doing a lot of Broadway, off-Broadway, and yes, that the Tony nomination, all that helps. But, you know, I wasn't one of the big singer, you know, dames to do a musical. So I thought, well, this will be, this will be a, a you know, a long shot. And I went in and there was, uh, as I said, there was Paul Gemignani, the, mm -hmm. the doctor, and there was James Lapine, and of course, Zeus sitting there, right, <laughs> right in front of me. And they said, and Paul Ford on the piano, I think, and they said, what did you bring? And I said, well, I, I, I brought, what did I have that I don't have? Which is a ballad from On a Clear Day and a show I had done with Bob Goulet and I toured around with it. It's a song I knew. And ex I sang it really, really slowly. I don't know why, whether the accompanist <laughs> was taking his cue from me or me from him, but I, in the middle of it, I'm thinking, Jesus, I just, I don't want to wake them, but this is going really <laughs> Sadly, <laughs> when it was over, and I thought, well, that's it. They said, did you bring anything else? And I, I, I underprepared, as I always am, I said, no. And I think Paul Gemignani said, did you bring an up-tempo song at all? And I said, no, but I can sing this one really, really fast. <laughs> and I looked at Paul, and I said, just go like a bat out of hell. And he did, and I did, and it made them laugh. It made them laugh. And then I got the workshop. That was the audition for the workshop. I got the workshop, and then from then on, you know, it gets it gets built on you. Wow, wow. Do, do you have some advice for you know any any young professionals or people just getting started about going in for auditions? I know you teach I do. classes on this, and 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 I yeah. have spent some hours learning from you. And yeah, it's it's a funny thing. Your chances of getting any role are really only always fifty fifty no matter how prepared you are, no matter how right you feel you are, when you walk in the door, they have something in mind. And once in a while, you can change their minds mm -hmm. if there's something unique about you or a way they hadn't thought of. But basically, you have to just know your material, calm yourself the hell down, pretend you're in the middle of the song when you start. So get rid of those, you know, nerves right at the top and just tell the story of the song. If they want to hear the big notes, and that's the obligation for the big notes, give them the big notes, but don't be an automaton. You know, like, I am not a robot. You know, right. just click everything, the picture in it of a human being, because you have to tell a story. Right. And that's well, the best you can do. Auditioning is such a, it's a, mostly they want you to do well. I, I must say, they really are praying that you do well <laughs> and, and, and are comfortable, because that then makes them comfortable. One of the things that you taught in your class years ago that I was fortunate enough to be a part of was that an actor always must have, and you said, full pockets. Full pockets. And it's something that has stuck with me for many, many years. And I'm wondering if you could just sort of talk about that, because it's a lesson that, that I took and I have passed on to my students. Full pockets is a kind of way of saying you need to be able to have more than one thought. 
in your head. In other words, there are the lyrics or the words of your monologue, and there, there is the music. So that's two things. But the third thing is your, your thinking has to keep moving. You can't just go from line to line. So full pockets is if I were to tell you a story and reach into my pocket, and at the same time I reach into my pocket, I'm thinking, oh, there's the dry cleaning receipt. Oh, my God, from the night I went to the dinner with, oh, that horrible person. You know, I'm, I'm crowding. I've got the past going on. I reach in the other pocket. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I have a hole in my pocket. Did I drop that? Where's my key? You know, just something in the present, something in the future something you carry with you that is about your life. So you bring some life with you into this room. When you're, particularly when you're auditioning, you have to have your thoughts keep moving while you're singing. The text is right there. It's the lyrics. And, and, you know, one of the things that has also stuck with me about that, that particular phrase is that an actor must have so much more at his or her disposal than acting technique, you know, must have life stuff from which to draw. The powers of observation. Get out of your head. Get off your devices. Stop clicking and start communicating and look around. If you have to play a person who is not like you and all you look at is the mirror or people who are like you, you're going to be a bad actor. So you need imagination and you need the powers of observation. So go go someplace. You know, for God's sake, in New York, you just have to go outside and just watch people overhear them sit in a restaurant by yourself don't be on your devices eat your food and look around yeah and you and you certainly used a lot of life in your performance of the baker's wife it was kind of the rudder of the show as i recall seeing it the first time because you were completely grounded in in relatability and humanity with all of the fairy tale antics spinning around you were kind of the person we would go to for this is how i would react this is how I would view this crazy world because I want something so much. Did you uh, did you arrive at that? Was a lot of that your invention? Did James Lapine help guide you there? How did that happen? Well, for for Chip Zion and for me, we were fictional, but we were not fairy tale. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were the people who you know. We were somebody said you're like the two Upper West Siders, you know, who landed. <laughs> who decided to downscale and they moved to this place with these crazy people, you know, and very <laughs> and, and I thought, yeah, we were playing people to whom you could relate. And if my uh, interpretation of it was seemed more contemporary and less stylized than the others, that's in the writing. That's James Lapine. That was what he had in mind. And then that's what Stephen had in mind in the way I sang and the things about which I sang. And ha- and how her brain worked. Mm-hmm. Well, what was uh, you know unique about your performance? You, of course, we've seen the show many times since then. Everyone does it. No one, and it's good that no one has duplicated your performance because no one wants to see anyone trying to copy someone else. But no one has seemed to hook into what whatever it was that hooked you into that, which seemed very special and, and was kind of sparkled through. You know, thank you very much. It it was uh, it was a an opportunity I will uh, never forget, and for which I am endlessly grateful. It was maybe the most fun I ever had uh, doing mm. uh, doing a, a musical. It was just love all the time, everywhere, because you can rely on the fact that the book and the music are just amazing. Right. Mm-hmm. It elevates you. It lifts you. You're not lugging some piece of material around, which we've all had to do. 
What's it like to to work on a brand new musical where you have composer and and lyricist uh, and and then book writer giving you changes and 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 additions and fixes and you know having a very malleable product up until you 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 open. I'm laughing. I'm laughing because in the case of of Sondheim or in the case of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, where Jeffrey Lane, who's a friend of mine, was writing pretty much tailoring it on me which is a, is a, a great honor. <laughs> and this story is actually in my show, which is coming to LA February 8th and 9th. Um, <laughs> this was from Nick and Nora, the musical that Charles Strauss wrote, Richard Maltby did the lyrics, and Arthur Lawrence wrote the book and directed. They changed my 10 o'clock numbers, the lyrics to it, so many times <laughs> that they changed it one last time the night of the first critics preview. And they changed it at about half hour. So I had no rehearsal. Wow. I said, I can't. There are all these lyrics sound. I can't. I can't. And Arthur said, look, I had props put hat boxes on the set. So you will pretend that you've come back from shopping and you're sitting down and there are all these purchases in front of you. And as you open each hat box inside the lid, we will have written some of the new lyrics. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. And, it, and the 10 o'clock number comes and I'm sweating bullets and everybody's in the wings watching to see this fiasco. And I open the first lid and it's the middle of the song. And, and suddenly, <laughs> no sense, tissue paper is flying. <laughs> I get through it. Jack Lee, the conductor, is doubled over in the pit laughing his ass off. And I went to Arthur afterwards and I said, you know, Arthur, you, you didn't number the boxes. I had to guess. And he said, well, you guessed wrong. And ah. <laughs> For those out there who aren't, don't know about Nick and Nora, we should probably fill them in. This oh, was yeah. a, a musical, a Broadway musical adaptation of the Thin Man movies from the 1930s. The Detective, uh, which starred William Powell and Myrna Loy and Barry Bostwick. And their little schnauzer and their little schnauzer Asta. And uh, <laughs> Asta and, uh, and Joanna, of course, played Nora. And and it had a long preview period. Did you did you preview out of town at all, or was it just cold in New York? Yeah, well, it couldn't have been any colder in New York. We previewed well, that's two hard. months, right. and we were the talk of the town during those previews because it was a disaster. And it's uh, it's so unfortunate because that happened with Merrily We Roll Along as well. It just opened cold, previewed and previewed, and got terrible word of mouth, and that poisoned the show. Yeah. How did how did you you know you're starring in the show? You're getting a lot of rewrites. You hear the talk. How did you keep your focus on the work and continuing every day to do the best you can to make the show really happen amidst the chaos? Because Chris Sarandon and I were falling in love. Oh wow! Huh? And so the nightmare of the days and the previews and the note sessions till midnight was mitigated by the fact that Chris and I really realized that we had found the rest of our lives. And that puts everything in perspective. That's a steadying That's influence right there. Fantastic. Yeah. That's Can you give us some insights as to the show's you know, growing pains? Uh, the, <laughs> it was badly directed. Arthur would admit that himself. It was crowded with plot too much, had an all-star cast, by the way, a phenomenal cast. Yeah. Uh, you know, Barry Bostwick was Nick and Chris and me and Christine Baranski and and, and Deborah Monk, and, you know, and Tom Cessna and Faith Prince and Ramak Ramsey. And it, it just, <laughs> it, it, it was a, a stunning uh, bit of casting. But nevertheless, the producers hated Arthur and Arthur hated this one. And Charles and Richard were fighting with Arthur and Arthur was fighting. And then the producer was, I hate your hair. And I'd go, I can't do it. <laughs> 
and I hate your dress and why aren't you wearing red? And I, these were not the problems with the show. And it just was a breakdown of communication and it was largely Arthur's fault. He, he did admit that mm. after it was all over. And it was extremely painful to be part of something, you know, uh, just with, with a with a with bullseye on its tuchus. Of course. Yeah. Now, the musical version of of the film "Dirty Rotten Scoundrels" uh, in two thousand four, music and lyrics by by the great David Gazbeck, and and you talked about a book by your friend Jeffrey Lane, who wrote hey. this role for you, and and it sounds like that that was a happy experience overall. That show. Yeah, you know when you have John Lithgow as the lead, and he is the sort of daddy of the company. And Jack O'Brien is the director, you know, and Jerry Mitchell did the choreography. This is a bunch of very happy, successful people. Right. And the company was a happy, and Sherry Renee Scott and Norbert Butts and Greg Jabara, you know, we we had a great time. The company was great. The dancers were great. That Everybody was adorable and wonderful. And we'd been to San Diego to try it out together and brought it in. And it was great, great fun. It was great fun. I was in it for a long time. Yeah. Like 15 months, and then John left, and uh, Jonathan Price came in, and um, Sherry had to go do something else. And you know, when casts change, I've Sarah Gettlefinger was in it too. Fantastic. Right. When when Sherry left, and John left, and you know, then you start playing the moving parts of other talented people coming in, but they haven't got the history with you. It changes, and you you have to kind of adjust and change. And I I realized after 15 months, I'm tired. I wanna I'm done. Yeah, that's a that's a long run, and you know I imagine that you, you develop sort of a routine or a process that you know to maintain uh, a performance for that long. Practical um, jokes. Practical jokes. Practical jokes. <laughs> I will be brought up on charges by Actors Equity for telling you this, but I was in charge of many a practical joke during the a, run of the show. Any that you you care to to retell? I'm not sure because there's every possibility that if I ever do another show, I may want to pull from the same. <laughs> Fair enough. So, what about when you're not working on a show? What do you do as an actor to maintain your instrument? Uh, I study voice uh, with Liz Kaplan, as a matter of fact. Um, I've been writing. I've written a screenplay. I've written one that's out there now, and uh, uh, we're going to mobilize uh, to. to uh, Put it into production i think within the next year i've written a second one and i'm working on a third i have a short that i wrote that i'm going to direct in the fall oh, wow. I wrote this show at feinstein's it's called out of the eclipse and it's it's um me and four musicians and three kind of backup harmony singers it's a, a very personal it's about my folks uh, but it's very funny and it's very moving and that's what's been getting a great deal of attention and you know that's why it's coming to la it may go to other venues, it's playing a 700-seat theater at Fairfield University at the gorgeous 700-seat Quick Center. The show that did uh, sold out at Feinstein's in March and July is coming there for one night, November the 8th. Uh, I'm very, very proud of it. That is very cool. Now, is this the same one? Because I know you did something at Birdland recently as oh, well. The pop-in for Joni Ryan. She had, was doing oh, okay. it, and she said, come sing a song with me. That's what I did. Oh, that's what I, okay. Yeah. Got it. So tell us a little bit more about the show that's coming to L.A. Is this is this the show? Yeah, it is. It's about the fact that it, in 2017, I lost my dad and my mom just a, just weeks apart. And they were 90 and 96, but it was a, like a four or five year process of, you know, watching and commuting back and forth to California. But I learned uh, so much about them and some of their early stories and some of our interactions were just 
priceless and it ties together with what I went through and, and, and it involves, it does digress to Nick and Nora because, um, because of something my dad said. And there's a lot about my parents in it without actually even naming them. They're just my mom and my dad. But people have been telling me that it makes them either remember or identify with what they're going through with their older parents. Uh, and remembering the stuff you can't remember where, when you're in the throes of losing them. So we had, there's so much there, so much that's magical and funny about who they were that I get to talk about now that some of the darkness has moved away. And literally the show is called Out of the Eclipse and the music is spectacular. It's songs you know or kind of don't know arranged by Jeffrey Kleitz, who is a genius, my music director and collaborator. And so the music and the narrative weave together through the whole show. There are a couple of very big numbers, like maybe three or four really big numbers, but a lot of it is just how to keep the story moving. Wow. And, and that's where, where in, will this be playing? Yeah, tell us the details. Uh, it, it may be too soon to, okay. to actually, but, but what I'll do is I will tell you and then you can promote it on another show. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> we, we, will. we will do, we will look forward to that. Now, before we, we, we go, because we're almost at, at half hour here, um, your, your, your career has obviously had a very strong film and television component to it. And I imagine that, that two of the more potent experiences were working with Woody Allen on, on two films, two fantastic films. Can you talk a little bit about working with, with him on those? Yeah. You know, it's a very minimalist experience because even the audition is you come in, he says, thank you for coming in. And that's it. You leave because he just needs to see you. You know, you've been vetted. Juliet Taylor was casting. She, you, her, she's seen my work. You've been, you know, he just needs to see you physically and, and just the kind of aura you give off is what he's looking for. And when I auditioned for, re-auditioned, uh, to come back for Crimes and Misdemeanors, the first one was Hannah and her sisters. When I walked in, he said, hi, good to see you again. And that was that, because he knows. So those two experiences, uh, I got to work with, you know, Alan Alda and Tony Roberts and, and yeah, and everybody were easy. The days were easy. Nothing was overworked or overshot. Some things were done in, you know, just two takes and that's it and you go home. So it, because it's a well-oiled machine and uh, I was very, uh, very, very happy. Well, the final question is just um, looking for your comment. Of course, everything changes and the musical theater has changed over the decades from one style to another. In the last, oh, 15 years, 20 years, there's been a movement towards the sound of shows has become more pop, mm -hmm. and there are more and more adaptations of movies um, uh, to become musicals. I mean, just last year we had Tootsie and King Kong of all things, and uh, and Beetlejuice. Kong of all things, yeah. Right, of all things. <laughs> we've, we've heard about King Kong, but, but uh, every one of those, there's a light in the piazza, which was just a stunning show. There's the Great Comet. You yes, know? right. And Hades Town. Hades Town right. last year, right? So, yeah, yeah. so your feeling is there are still unique things that will pop up in the midst of what becomes a, oh, a kind yes. of a generalized hum. And the band's visit. I mean, there will, there will, there's room, and also it's so refreshing that these shows actually stand out. Not only are they wonderful, but they stand out because the noise diminishes for a minute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So optimistic. Yes, always. The always optimistic Joanna Gleason. Joanna, thank you so much for being here. My you pleasure. Are thank you both so much. A delight. And we look forward to seeing your show when it comes to L.A., but we can't tell you the details yet, but we will. 
Yes, there's a there's a rumor you're doing a show in L.A. on February 8th and 9th. That's it. Let's okay. keep it right there. <laughs> there's details to follow. <laughs> thank Fantastic you, Fantastic Joanna Gleason. Thank you. Yes, bye-bye. This has been Half Hour to Curtain, a monthly podcast with theater artists of note. It is produced by Los Angeles Musical Theater Studio, and our theme song is by Anthony Luca. Please join us next month with another interview with another theater personality. Thanks for tuning in. That's Dan Fishback over there. And that's Mark Kaufman over there. And we'll see you next month when it's half hour to curtain again.